0: Hey, everyone. Welcome back to in Apologetics. As always, you're brought to you, you with your support on Patreon.com. Today, I'm joined by Stephen nevis He's a PhD candidate at Theology for Theological Seminary. Today, we're going to be talking about divine simplicity. So, uh, Stephen, welcome. Thank you so much for joining me. How are you doing?
1: Thank you for having me. I'm doing well. Thank you.
0: Yeah, it's gonna be um, a lot of fun. We're gonna be talking about a version of like a model of God, which is like classical theism, the divine simplicity tradition here. Um, so Stephen's gonna be talking about that, defending that. We're gonna just look at like the basics of it and some common objections. But before we get into that, can you talk a little bit about like who you are and what you do, then? Sure.
1: Uh, like you said, I'm a PhD candidate at Fuller Theological Seminary. I'm gonna be submitting my dissertation in February very soon here, so. Hopefully, within about a month or two, you can. <laughs> I can. I can be called Dr. Stephen Nemesh instead of just Stephen Nemesh PhD candidate. So I'm. I'm looking forward to that. You know, Lord willing. Uh, I'm recently married. I was married in September uh, to my wonderful wife, Rachel. Uh, we live in Phoenix, Arizona. I also teach at Grand Canyon University, which is a private Christian university here in in Phoenix. I teach philosophy there. Um, what is there to say about me? Not very much. I like, I like theology, philosophy, uh, the intersection of the two. Uh, I sort of study everything. I don't have like a particular thing that I'm an expert on by any means, although my dissertation is is uh, it's titled A Constructive Theological Phenomenology of Scripture. So my, my principal philosophical background is in ph- phenomenology. I should say that I, I do phenomenology, philosophically speaking. My my, mm-hmm. I did an undergrad in in uh, philosophy from Arizona State
0: University, and there I, I what studied What is phenomenology, um, in case someone doesn't know what it is?
1: Yeah, phenomenology is a school of philosophy that is distinct in certain ways from analytic philosophy. So just like in martial arts, you have different schools. You have karate, kung fu, muay thai, Brazilian jiu-jitsu, whatever. So also in philosophy, you have different schools. There are different ways of doing philosophy. Phenomenology is a form of philosophy that proceeds on the basis of the study of experience. So if you wanted to give a very brief definition of phenomenology, you could uh, follow Robert Sokolowski, who says that phenomenology is the study of human experience and of the ways things disclose themselves to us in and through such experience. So that's what phenomenology is in a nutshell. My dissertation is a phenomenology of scripture. So I'm addressing two questions in my dissertation. Uh, what, what does it mean to read the Bible as scripture? What actually are we doing when we read the Bible as scripture? And um, is there an experience of the word of God in the act of reading the Bible of scripture? When we read the Bible as scripture, is there an experience where God actually speaks to us? Uh, mm-hmm. So that those are the questions that I'm addressing in my dissertation. It's a little far removed from what we're going to be talking about today, but it's that that's what I do.
0: Yeah, it's awesome. And then um, what do you do like ministry-wise? I know you were talking off stream about like you're planning on like launching like a potential website and stuff coming up. So like, what do you do on like the ministry end of things?
1: Ah, yes. Um, Used to be I would preach now and again at uh, churches here in the Phoenix area. I haven't done that in a while. What I want to do is to open up a website, which is going to be a kind of a personal ministry of mine. And I'm going to call it Christ is for everyone. Um, And the tagline, if you want to get an idea of what the, the website is about is celebrating the goodness of life in the love of Christ. Uh, In a a nutshell, basically, I am trying to teach people how to find life and joy and peace and freedom in the teachings of Jesus Christ. You know, Christ uh, says in the Gospels that he comes to bring life abundant to his sheep Uh, He says that he brings a joy that nobody can take away from us. He says that he brings peace that's different from the sort of peace that the world offers. And he says that when we know the truth, it'll set us free. But at the same time, you know, there are a lot of people who are lacking in life, joy, peace, and freedom, and even people who are Christians who believe in Christ, they still don't feel these things. So what I want to do with this website is to show people in various ways how it is that we can find life, joy, peace, and freedom in the teachings of Jesus Christ. And it's called Christ mm-hmm. is for Everyone. So that's that'll be in the future. It's not coming out just right just right now, but it'll be out in maybe the next couple months.
0: Right, and I think we're all looking forward to that. So let's talk about divine simplicity. I think it's such an interesting topic, um, like models of God and like, how does this all work? Like, what is God? Like, can we know anything about like God's nature? So if you were gonna like present the doctrine of divine simplicity, um, like what is it and unless like kind of like its basic tenets? Mm-hmm.
1: Divine simplicity is defined differently by different people. Uh, one of the typical ways that it's defined in the analytic philosophy of religion literature is as follows the divine the Doctor of divine simplicity affirms that god is beyond all forms of composition that are typical of creatures for example he is not a form matter composite uh, he is not a composite of essence and existence he is not an individual thing with a certain nature or anything like that uh, so you might say that you know some people take this and they say well god um, is identical to all of his properties. There's no divisions or distinctions within God, things like that. Personally, I think that the best way to define divine simplicity is as follows: uh, the doctrine of divine simplicity affirms that God is not an individual with a multiplicity of properties. And so, from the from the start, you are distinguishing God from absolutely everything that we know or that we encounter and experience or that we really can think about. Um, you know, if you take me for example, I'm an individual. And I also have various properties and some of them are essential to me, like the fact that I'm a human being or that I have the capacity for laughter or for language. And some of them are accidental to me, uh, like, for example, the fact that I'm married or the fact that I'm a certain weight or that I am a certain height, that I'm hungry or that I'm sleepy or tired or satisfied or whatever. I'm an individual thing with a bunch of properties, some of them essential, some of them accidental. The doctrine of divine simplicity, in my interpretation, says that God is not an individual thing with properties. So from the start, we are distinguishing God from basically everything that is, that mm-hmm. is not
0: right yeah this is great so um in a second here i wanted to talk to you about like why would you hold a divine simplicity do have a super chat from gospel edge this looks like surplus money eating away the faith what is your thought on this um i don't know (laughs) i don't really know but thank you so much for your super chat and i really appreciate your support that means a lot um but with like divine simplicity uh why hold to this doctrine like i remember um i was a christian for a few years and i had no idea that this thing even existed that was so common like in the church tradition and such so mm-hmm. why would you hold to divine simplicity in the first place
1: it is interesting to note that historically speaking the majority of all the most Im- important theologians in christian history affirmed the doctrine of divine simplicity they thought about god in more or less these terms but if you talk to people in America, Christians in America, especially these days, and especially among Protestants and evangelicals, they have no idea about this. And when I describe, for example, when I teach my students at GCU about the doctrine of the divine simplicity and distinguish between classical theism and theistic personalism or whatever you want to call it, they don't even recognize classical theism at all. The way that you know classical theists describe God is totally strange and foreign to them, despite the fact that it was, historically speaking, the most popular understanding of God among Christian theologians until relatively recently. Mm -hmm. Um, Why would you believe in divine simplicity? Well, there are a lot of different arguments, but they more or less amount to the same thing. Given that God is the ultimate reality, that he is not caused by anything, that he doesn't depend on anything for his existence, that he is not derivative in any way, given that he's sort of the origin and the the foundation of all reality, he cannot be composite in the various ways that uh, ordinary things are composite. He cannot be a formatter composite. He can't be an individual thing of a certain nature. He can't be a composite of essence and existence, uh, you know, to use the examples from Thomas Aquinas. Uh, Basically, the argument for divine simplicity is that unless you think about God in this way, inevitably, you're going to make God into a dependent thing. And you're going to have to try to account for God's existence or his nature by appealing to something outside of him, which is, of course, impossible. God is supposed to be the rock bottom level. There's supposed to be nothing beyond him and everything is supposed to come from him. And so, because everything comes from Him, because uh, He's the rock bottom level of reality, therefore He cannot be, as I say, an individual thing with properties.
0: Right. Yeah. This is great. So, one of the things I want to talk about um, is like these it wasn't in the question but the additional attributes of God. They kind of get uh, I wouldn't call them attributes because you'd hold a divine simplicity, but kind of these like um, things that we describe that God has um, in His in His nature um that like a, a classical theist would deny or not a classical sorry uh theistic personalist would deny like um god's imminence his or not sorry his, his immutability his impassibility um his timelessness and his just his simplicity so why um are these four kind of like part of classical theism and kind of like how does it why does it differ from like neoclassical theism um if you kind of get what i'm saying sorry i was like all sure. over the place for a second no
1: i understand what you mean i think that the difference between classical theism and theistic personalism or neoclassical theism or whatever you want to call it uh, is as follows classical theism emphasizes how god is different from creatures and Mm -hmm. neoclassical theism or theistic personalism emphasizes how god is greater than creatures so the classical theist will say that unlike us and everything else god is timeless. Mm-hmm. Unlike us and unlike everything else, God is impassable, which means that he can't be affected by anything. He is never on the receiving end of a causal relation, for example. Um, unlike us uh, and everything else, God is immutable. He doesn't change. He's not one way at some point in time and then another way later on. Uh, and then finally, and then in the most radical sense, unlike us, God is not an individual thing with properties. I am an individual thing that has a multiplicity of properties, like I said, and pretty much everything that we can point to in our experience is going to be like that. Um, even ordinary medium-sized objects, as they're called, like cats and dogs, even you know, super micro objects like atoms, quarks, neutrons, electrons, whatever they are, and even big-sized objects like galaxies. All of these are going to be individual things with properties, and you're going to be able to distinguish these things from each other in virtue of the fact that, well, this thing is a human, it has the property of humanity. This thing is a cat that has the property of felinity. Well, unlike all those things, God is not an individual thing with properties. This is the the most radical thought. The doctrine of divine simplicity is the most radical of the doctrines. He is not an individual thing with properties. So you you couldn't even say, for example, that God is an instance of the divine nature. God is, you know, some sort of like an instance of the kind God or whatever you want to call it. He is simply a pure, unmixed, simple, you know, ultimate reality that is not anything in particular. Um, so that's classical theism. It emphasizes how God is different from creatures and from everything else. Theistic personalism, or um, uh, neoclassical theism, or however you want to call it, emphasizes how God is greater than creatures. So for example, when I teach to my students the you know just like you have the four major doctrines of classical theism, I give three you know central doctrines of theistic personalism, and I say that uh, God is omnipotent, omniscient, and perfectly good. And notice that in order to say all those things, you have to assume that God is like us, only greater. Like us, God has power to do things. Only his power is maximal. Like us, God has knowledge. Only his knowledge is maximal. There's nothing that he doesn't know. Uh, like us, God has moral qualities. Uh, but unlike us, he is morally perfect. He doesn't make mistakes. He never does the wrong thing, et cetera, et cetera. So in a, in a nutshell, I would say that classical theism emphasizes how God is different from creatures and from us. Whereas theistic personalism emphasizes how God is greater than us. And of course, if you say that God is greater than us, then that assumes that you can make a comparison. So there's some fundamental similarity or commensurability that exists between creatures and God in virtue of which you can make the comparison
0: hmm so i if i could sense it like in classical atheism you're trying to emphasis like god's distinction from everything else in the world by affirming things like his timelessness and like his immutability but i wonder like could god enter like time in your view like is it impossible or is it something that he's just kind of like he's just distinct from the world so it's kind of like a kind of like almost like an absurd question to say that god could enter time or um be impacted by the world in terms of like becoming like mutable or things along these, these lines or
1: passive. Yeah, I think that's a great question. Um, you, you really hit the nail on the head when you said that God is distinct from the world. Um, mm-hmm. you, know, I, I, you might also put it like this. God is not anything in the world. There's nowhere in the world that you can go and find God. Uh, you're not going to find him inside of a church building. You're not going to find him out in space somewhere. He's not in the center of the earth. He's not anywhere in the world right? Because mm-hmm. in the world, what happens is we encounter individual things with properties. We see a building, we see the planet, we see the galaxies, we see human beings, we see cats, dogs, etc. And so if God is not an individual thing with properties, he's never going to show up in the world. He's not going to show up in this, you know, outside, you know, where, where, where we encounter things. So then the question arises, can God enter into time? No, mm-hmm. he cannot enter into time. Um, I would say rather that everything that exists in time and even time itself is caused by God. So all temporal beings and everything that exists within time depend on God for their existence, but God himself is not one more thing in time. He's sort of, he stands outside of it all, uh, so mm-hmm. to speak.
0: Right, so one thing I kind of wonder about is it seems like Um, if we talk about like, um, like arguments for God and such, where we're talking about, um, like the foundation of reality, it seems like, you know, like we have things that we experience, like you and me and matter and, um, energy and time and space and all these things. But then we have at the foundation, something that's completely distinct, completely different from everything we experience in reality. I almost wonder, like, do you think that, like, how would you respond to someone that would say it sounds like a little bit bizarre to think that this is like that this being that's completely distinct from reality would be at the foundation of reality? It's not really all that
1: bizarre, um, mm-hmm. you know. If if you if suppose we were camping and somebody was cooking beans, you know, on, on in a in a pot in, near near their fire, uh, and I were to ask him, okay, the beans in this pot are they hot? He would say, yeah. Okay, why are they hot? Um, well, because the pot that they're in, that's hot, you know. Because beans are not hot by default. When he bought the beans at the store, they were not hot. Uh, when mm-hmm. the beans came out of the ground, they were not hot. Right, so they're not hot by default. Something has to explain why they're hot, and you can explain the heat in the beans by appealing to the pot. And then you ask the same question: Okay, why is the pot hot? Um, is the pot hot by default? Was it that hot when you bought it at the store? Clearly not. Otherwise, you'd burn your hand as you put it in the shopping cart, right? So the heat, you know, the heat is transferred from the pot to the beans, but the pot itself is not hot, you know, by nature or by default. That hot, that heat has also has to come from somewhere. Well, where does the heat come from for the pot? Well, then you'll say, okay, well, the fire that we're cooking on makes the pot hot. And that's what heats the beans. And I say, okay, does anything have to make the pot, the fire to be hot? You'll say, no, the fire is hot by default. That's just what it is to be fire is to be hot. That's how it is with God. When we see the world, we find that it there are certain things that are true about the world. For example, that it's composed of things that are individuals with a multiplicity of properties. And then you can ask, okay, well, if a thing is is an individual with a multiplicity of properties, does it have to exist? No, because I can think about things that are individuals with properties and they don't exist. For example, the things that I dream about, uh, fictional characters, you know, Frodo and Sam from Lord of the Rings. They are individual things with properties, but they don't exist. They're not real. Um, Scientific you know, hypothetical postulates, for example, the planet Vulcan or ether or all these things that scientists are postulating. They know what they are. The the scientists who postulate postulated the planet Vulcan, they knew what it was. It was a planet. And then it was, you know, located at a certain place between the earth and the sun. But did they know that it existed? No. And they later found out that it didn't. So we can know what a thing is. We can have a grasp, you know, of a thing as an individual with properties, but whether or not it exists is something else. And just because a thing is an individual with properties, it doesn't mean that it exists. Santa Claus is mm-hmm. a thing with an, you know, is an individual with properties, but he doesn't exist. I, I do this experiment with my students all the time. You know, I ask them, "What is Santa Claus?" And they say, "Well, he's this guy who is fat and jolly, and he lives at the North Pole, and he has an army of elves that work for him, and he creates toys for kids all year, and then, you know, on Christmas Eve he travels throughout the world on a sleigh, and he brings, you know, uh, toys to children who have behaved themselves throughout the year, and if a child has been bad, then he brings them coal." People know all kinds of things about Santa Claus they know exactly what he is where he's from what he does you know what he's about but we also know that he doesn't exist hmm. right it's not that we're not it's not that Santa Claus is nothing he's clearly something there's a difference between nothing and Santa Claus you know when kids um, are waiting for their presents on Christmas Eve they're not waiting for nothing they're waiting for Santa Claus but at the same time we know that Santa Claus doesn't exist so it's one thing to be an individual with properties it's another thing to exist And so the argument that I would give for divine simplicity goes like this. Everything that is an individual with properties, you know, its existence is something more. I can know what a thing is as an individual with properties, but I don't yet know whether it exists. And if it does exist, it has to receive that existence from outside of it, just like the the beans and the pot, for example, can be hot, but they have to receive that heat from outside of them. And so when we reach the rock bottom level, we reach something that is just pure existence, pure being, um, as Thomas Aquinas says. And that cannot, in principle, be an individual with properties, because, again, being an individual with properties means that your existence is something else. Your existence is something distinct from you and you have to receive it as a gift, just like the heat in the beans, you know, has to be received from Mm -hmm. the outside, from the fire and through the pot. Uh, So that's why I you know somebody says, well, it sounds odd that the the you know the rock bottom level of reality would not be just one more thing, like the rest of them.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I would say the the indiv- you know the rock bottom level of reality cannot be just one more thing because if you think really closely about what it is to be a thing, what it is to be a thing with properties, you will discover that nothing that is a thing with properties has existence by default, and God has mm-hmm. to have existence by default. And so therefore he is not an individual with properties.
0: Mm, right. Yeah, that's great. Um, one more question here. And then we'll work into some objections and then we'll save the last like 15 minutes or so for live Q&A if you have things like that. Um, but why do you think so many people are moving away from like classical theism today? Like it seems like I've been hearing like more and more people who would like reject this. So wh- why do you think um, if it's like the dominant view over church history? Why do you think there's this like, not like maybe like even an exodus away from like the view of classical theism?
1: I would say that it's the work of Satan, but I, that would be too snarky, and I, I don't actually <laughs> believe that. You know, I, I don't actually believe that. So, for example, my friend Ryan Mullins—he has brought mm-hmm. forth a lot of objections against classical theism. He uh, and his arguments are good. I don't think that his arguments prove that classical theism is false, but at the, at, at you know at any rate, they have to be reckoned with. Um, why are people leaving classical theism? Because actually, I think that in Christian theology, there is a kind of double speak. Um, On the one hand, you know, Christian theologians traditionally affirm divine simplicity, immutability, timelessness, et cetera, et cetera. On the other hand, um, you know, sort of on the ground, so to speak, people talk about God in ways that suggest that he's one more thing like the rest of us. You know, he's just another individual with properties. Maybe his properties are a little different than ours. Maybe his properties are sort of maximal compared to ours. But at the very least, he's still one more thing with properties. Um, so I think that the difficulty arises because there's a tension in these two ways that people talk about God. There's a tension between the more popular descriptions of God as a personal, you know, creator of the world who loves us, et cetera, blah, 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 uh, and the philosophical description of God in classical theism as an absolutely simple, immutable, impassable, timeless, you know, foundation of reality. Um, how to reconcile these two things? If you read, for example, Ryan Mullen's arguments and the arguments of other friends of mine like Joe Schmid, they will say there is no reconciling these two things. Either you have the personal God of Christian theism or you have this metaphysical abstraction uh, from uh, ancient Greek philosophy. My own way of responding to their arguments is to take what you might call an apophatic line. Um, And basically Mm -hmm. what that consists in is that I simply make denials. So, you know, a typical argument from from, you know, the critics of classical theism will go like this. Uh, Christianity affirms X. Classical theism affirms Y. There's no way to reconcile X and Y. So therefore, you have to choose. Actually, my way of responding to this is that, no, Christianity does not affirm X. What -hmm. Christianity does affirm is, in fact, compatible with what classical theism says. Uh, So that's what I call the apophatic um, line you know, basically I'm making denials. No, God does not actually do this, not actually do that, you know, whatever. And when we discuss these objections to classical theism later, you'll see just how radical this move is. Um, But basically, I think that if you're really going to, you know, wrestle with the picture of God that is proposed by classical theism, you will have to correct in your mind uh, certain ingrained and, you know, natural ways of thinking that inevitably you gained because you grew up in a Christian environment or you grew up in a culture where, you know, there was a strong strong, uh, cultural presence of Christianity uh, at the popular level. So that's that's what I think. I think in order to understand Christianity and classical theism better, you have to sort of clean away some of the more popular conceptions involved in Christianity and to, you know, sort of purify them philosophically speaking.
0: Right. Yeah, that's great. Um so let's get into some of these objections to classical theism. I have three of like the more of the most common objections and kind of see how your approach looks at it. So the first one is the idea of modal collapse, where um, you know, at Vezir will talk about how God is pure act, um, there's no potential in God in the sense that like he's just pure existence himself. Um so what they argue is if there's no potential, then you know, God c- couldn't have created the world differently. There's no potential other worlds. There's a lot of different forms of modal collapse, and I'm by no means a philosopher that can come and give this like brilliant objection. Through modal collapse. Like, how do you respond to like the general argument of like against modal collapse um, with regards to against uh classical theism? And, and I mean God would have no free will. Um, there is no other possible world than the one we live in.
1: Yeah, you might summarize the modal collapse argument like this: God is the cause of the world. You know, God is the cause, the world is the effect. God cannot be otherwise than he is, if you grant divine simplicity. The way he is is the way he is necessarily, because he is just this. Pure simple reality. He's not a composite. And so, if God mm-hmm. cannot be otherwise than he is, then the world cannot be otherwise than it is. And so, you have a modal collapse. You know, everything that is true in the world is as necessary as God himself is. Um, the way that I would respond to this argument is by denying a certain principle that I think is implicit in the argument. I think that the argument presupposes what I've called the difference principle. And the difference principle can be formulated like this. Um, A possible difference in the effect presupposes a possible difference in the cause. And so we can illustrate this principle, which is actually very intuitive as follows. You know, when I go to my car uh, and I turn the key, uh, you know, I turn the key and then that leads to the engine igniting and then the car turns on. So suppose that I do that every day and all the time the result is the same. Now, one day when I go down to my car, I turn the key and the car doesn't turn on. Here we've got a difference in effect. And so the difference principle says that this possible difference in effect has to be explained by means of a possible difference in the cause. And so there has to be something different in that total mechanism that begins with me turning the key and ends with the engine igniting. There has to be something different there to explain the difference in effect. What I'm going to suggest is that the classical theist can avoid the conclusion of the modal collapse argument by denying the difference principle. The classical theist, in other words, can say that God remains totally unchanged across all possible worlds, so to speak. And yet his effect is different in every world. Sometimes, you know, in some worlds he creates a a, a created order, in some worlds he doesn't. In some worlds the created order looks like this, in other worlds the created order looks like that. But there's there's no difference in God that accounts for the difference in the world as his effect. God remains absolutely unchanged, and there is no difference in him, but sometimes the effects are different. So basically what I'm considering is that uh, the classical theist should think of divine causation as what, what you might call indeterministic. Uh, you know, Just like, for example, in, in the, dis- the philosophical discussion about free will, indeterminism is the view that uh, you know at any moment in time, or at some moments in time, rather, the past history of the world can remain exactly as it is, and yet there are different possibilities available with respect to the future. Mm-hmm. So for example, if I'm deliberating about what to do, everything that is true about me, my interests, my desires, my current mental states, all that can be exactly the same. And yet it's still possible for me to do this or to do that. So also I say, God is absolutely the same across every possible world. And yet because his causation of the world is indeterministic, therefore it's possible for him to cause this world or to cause that world or else to cause no world whatsoever. So if you are already sympathetic to the notion of indeterminism, I think that you should grant that the classical theist can appeal to something like that in defending against the modal collapse argument. And basically, you know, the denial of the difference principle is the same thing as affirming indeterminism.
0: Mm. Right. So would you say that God could have like possibly created other worlds than like the world we live in?
1: I would say it would be more accurate to say that other worlds could have been caused by God Mm. than this one. I wouldn't say that God possibly could because that makes it sound like God has a power that is going unexercised. That's not what Mm -hmm. I'm saying. God does not have powers that go unexercised. Right. He is just purely actual. Um, But a different world might have been caused than this one. A different world might have arisen out of God's power than this one or perhaps no world at all. So that's that would be a more precise way of formulating the idea.
0: All right. That's great. And thank you for clarifying. Uh, Another objection would be kind of maybe to God's impassibility, the idea that um, God does not experience or pain or pleasure from the actions of like other beings like ourselves. And one of the things that I kind of wonder about this is like, how does like, um, you know, like Ryan Mullins or like God in motion, like how does the emotional life of God work? Like is God incapable of loving us since he exists perfectly happy like it would seem like if god is impassable then his um love would just kind of be like almost like maybe like static or something along these lines so how do you work um with like the idea as christians we believe that god loves us loves us and has given us great gifts Um, so how do you work with like the impassibility of god and god loving us and things along these lines
1: that's a good question and i think in fact there are two issues involved here uh, one of which is you know the issue of how to understand what it means to say that God loves us. Uh, the other one being, what does it mean to say that God is unaffected by things? Um, you know, or what is God's emotional like in general? Emotional life like in general. Um, you know, the theologian Jurgen Moltmann, uh, in his book *The Crucified God*, he objected strongly to classical theism, and he says that this view, especially with its doctrine of impassibility, you know, makes God into a cold stone, basically, because how can God love us? And yet he is not affected by the fact that we suffer. Um, You know, and then when I present on classical theism to my students at GCU, I, I try to be even more radical. I say God is not made angry or upset or saddened by the fact that you sin, and neither is he made happier or does he rejoice in a literal sense when you repent of your sins. God is totally unchanged by everything that you do. Um, so it's important to sort of really grasp what is classical theism saying? It's saying that God is unaffected by anything that happens to us. Whatever God is in himself, that cannot be changed. It cannot be affected by anything that happens. So what would it mean to say that God loves us in that case? How can God love us if, for example, he's not affected by the fact that we sin or that good things happen to us? Well, one way of understanding this is to interpret Theological statements about God's love or his goodness or his kindness, et cetera, in terms of the effects that God produces in the world. So when we say that God loves us, we mean that he causes things to happen that are good for us. For example, Mm -hmm. he loves us and so he causes us to exist. Uh, He provides for our needs by causing the world to exist and to make it a world where, you know, we have everything that we need in order to survive. Even in a more radical sense, he causes us to, you know, be spiritually awakened to the truth about ourselves in Christ. Uh, So he gives us the rebirth, the regeneration, if you want to use those terms. Um, And then in the end, he causes us to live eternally and to have, you know, the resurrection of the body and eternal life. So for a classical theist, I think you could say that God loves us not because he has these internal feelings or because he has like this inner emotional life, but rather because he causes things to happen, which would, you know, which are... You know, good for us. Mm -hmm. So his love basically is like an external matter. God loves us in the sense that he causes things to happen which are expressive of what we would call love. Not because he feels a certain way about us on the inside, but because of what actually happens in the world. You know, it it, it's good for us. Uh, of course, when we love, we don't only do loving things, we also have this internal experience. You know, I, I love my wife. And so I went through the, you know, I did the act of marrying her. But I also felt various things. So there was an outside aspect and an inside aspect. When it comes to classical theism, we don't know what God's inner life is. We don't know what he is on the inside. This this remains unknowable to us because he's not accessible to us like everything else is. But we do know what he does. We do know the effects that he produces. And so we can say that God loves us because he produces effects that are loving. In other words, that are good for us. Mm. Um, you know, so that's how I would say. Now, then the question, OK, well, how can God love us if he isn't affected by anything that Happens to us, you know, like Moltmann said. That's a good question. Uh, I think we can answer it in two ways. There are two options here. In the first place, we can just say God does not love us if by love you mean something internal, like a feeling, right, that is dependent on what happens to us, like the sort of vulnerable feeling, just like our love for each other is vulnerable. If, you mm-hmm. know, if I love Rachel, then if something bad happens to her, then I'm sad. If something good happens to her, then I'm happy, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, so one option is to say God does not love us in that way. there is no there is nothing you know on the in, in the inside life of God, the interior life of God that is like love. Um, another option is to say that whatever God's inside life is like, his interior life, uh, it can't be affected by anything right? It cannot be disturbed. Mm-hmm. Now why can't it be disturbed? Is it because God doesn't care about us or because he's simply closed off to us? That's one logical option. I don't think it's a very good one. Another logical option, one that I don't necessarily endorse, but I think it's possible, is to say that God knows something and that keeps him from being affected. You know, mm-hmm. so for example, if if, um, if I knew, th- you know, that something bad was going to happen, but that the result would be very good, and I had absolutely no doubt whatsoever that the good result was going to outweigh the bad result, then maybe when something bad happens to me, I wouldn't be bothered by it, right? Mm, my yeah. My happiness would be undisturbed. So maybe it's also possible that God knows something that is so good and is, is so, you know, overwhelmingly positive that even the bad things that happen in the world don't affect him. Um, mm. And he might think that this good thing has something to do with us. Uh, you know, maybe God knows the end from the beginning and he knows that our end is a good one, even if right now things may not be so nice. And so it simply doesn't affect him. It doesn't, you know, it's it doesn't hurt him. Uh, you might give the following example. This is an example that I, I heard from a, a friend of mine on Facebook, Dwayne Polk. Um, you know, imagine like if you're seeing a kid walking, it's a, it's a toddler and he's like, you know, he's walking along and having fun. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden he trips and nothing really terrible has happened to him, but you know, he starts to cry and tears come out of his eyes and so on. You are not also going to cry just because the toddler has fallen when nothing's happened to him. You know, Mm -hmm. you, you know, it's not really a big deal and this is just a part of learning and growing up. So you pick him up and you say, oh, it's okay. Maybe God also is like that. Maybe he knows that as miserable as things may seem to us right now, the end is a good one. And Mm -hmm. so he sees that we're just sort of walking towards this really brilliant and beautiful end so that really what happens to us now is not all that bad in comparison. Maybe it's not bad at all. Uh, Mm -hmm. That's a possibility. I don't mean to endorse this, but it is a possibility for understanding how God can love us. um, And yet the bad things that happen to us don't affect him because he knows that the end is a really good one.
0: One of the things I love about how you can address these objections is just kind of getting like almost like options. Like, you don't have to make this like decisive counter argument that shuts everything down, but you just kind of give good reasons to believe like this may be the case or this may not be the case. Um, And one last kind of objection that we'll hear to divine simplicity, just a very common one, is the idea of the Trinity. Um, If we're going to hold that like God has no parts, He's absolutely simple, Um, like how do we get this idea of the Trinity, there being um, three persons in God in a sense? Um, So it seems like a very tricky question. So, how do you address like uh, the Trinity and divine simplicity?
1: This is a good question. Uh, this is also something that I've addressed in a paper of mine that is going to be published soon. I'm responding to um, a discussion in my, my doctoral coordinator, Oliver Crisp's recent book, Analyzing Doctrine. So he, he came out with a book recently called Analyzing Doctrine. Um, and he talks a little bit about models of God, classical theist, theism, theistic personalism, and so on. He gives his own model of God called chastened theism. Uh, which he tries to synthesize classical theism and theistic personalism. Um, in responding to Oliver, I put forth a view that I call uh, pure act theism. Pure mm-hmm. act theism is basically a species of classical theism. It's the view that God, you know understood in terms of uh, the created order, you know, philosophically understood, is just pure actuality. He's just pure existence. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I raised the question, okay, well, how do you get a doctrine of the Trinity if you have this notion of God? Uh, And then I suppose, well, philosophically, all that we can know about God is that he is pure existence. He is just this pure reality that sits at the basis of everything. Mm. But the incarnation of Christ changes things. When Christ comes into the world, he makes it possible for us to know something new about God that we did not previously know, namely Mm. the fact that God is, in fact, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, it's really important to understand that the Orthodox doctrine of the Trinity says a lot less than people take it to say. You know, people think, well, God is three persons in one. God is, you know, like uh, three centers of consciousness or whatever. These are all models of the Trinity that start with what the Orthodox doctrine says and then try to build on top of it. But strictly speaking, all that the Orthodox doctrine of the Trinity says is that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are consubstantial and yet at the same time hypostatically distinct or personally distinct. The Father is not the same person as the Son, neither is he the same person as the Holy Spirit, and yet all these are one and the same God, okay? So how do we understand that? That is something that doesn't really make a lot of sense for us. My own inclination is to say that there's no making sense of it. Uh, It's just in Christ, we get a glimpse of this inner life of God that is extremely tantalizing and yet mysterious. We don't have enough details. We don't know enough, but through Christ, we can know that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit Whereas philosophically, apart from Christ, all that we can know is that God is pure actuality. So basically, Mm -hmm. I'm proposing a kind of perspectivalism. uh, And you might consider the following example. You know, suppose you have a, a painting. Or no, actually, let's, you know, suppose we use this icon, for example. All right. From this side, all you can see is that this is a block of wood. And maybe you can see this thing here. So you can assume maybe there's something on the other side of it. But from this side, all you can see is that it's a block of wood. But when it turns over, you can see that it's an icon of Christ. Okay, so from this side, you can see that it's an icon, whereas from this side, all you can see is that it's a block of wood. So also, philosophically speaking, you know, just starting from the created world and that's it, you know, making use of no other sources, what we can know about God is that he is pure actuality. But if we have Christ, if Christ comes into the world, he reveals something more. He gives us a new perspective. He, he you know, accomplishes a kind of a shift in perspective that makes it possible for us to see something more, just like you know, turning the icon makes it possible for you to see what's on it. Uh, with Christ, we can see that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We don't see how that works. It remains a mystery. You know, Who knows how Father, Son, and Holy Spirit can be consubstantial and yet personally distinct? I don't know. Nobody knows. Mm-hmm. However, That is what Christ reveals to us. When you look at what Christ does, when you look at the things that he says, the way that he talks about Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, this is the image that you get. This is the picture that you get of three persons in the one God. You can't get much more than that because Christ doesn't reveal more than that. He just gives us this tantalizing glimpse. Apart from Christ, you would have no way of knowing that. Apart from Christ, all you have is pure actuality. But once Christ comes into the world, he gives us a new perspective and makes it possible for us to see, you know, sort of dimly as in a mirror, as Paul says. that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and not uh, only you know, pure actuality. That's how I would respond to this question. Um, it's, it's admittedly true. The doctrine of the divine simplicity makes it hard to understand how God can be fa- Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But basically, I would respond to the objection by saying, listen, the doctrine of the divine simplicity is the way God looks from a certain perspective, so to speak. Right? When you compare God to the created order, you get this image of God as pure actuality. Now, when Christ comes into the world, he offers a new perspective in which we can you know, gl- you know, sort of dimly discern that God is also Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. How these things work out together, I don't know, because we don't know what are the relations between the persons of the Trinity. Uh, but I can say that the doctrine of divine simplicity is, a, you know, you might say that it's an accurate description of God from the point of view of his relation to creatures, whereas the doctrine of the Trinity is an accurate description of God as he is revealed in Christ. And these are somehow mm. true, just like you you, know, you can't see the whole picture at once, just like you can't see both sides of the icon at once. You can either see the front or the back. You know, mm. you can't see them all at the same time. So also we can't see God all at the same time, at least not now. When mm. we look at him from the point of view of creatures, we see pure actuality. When we look at him from the point of view of Christ, we see Father, Son and Holy Spirit. And that's the best that we can do right now.
0: Mm. Right, that's great. That's great. Um, I like how you approach that. What we'll do now is we'll go to a little bit of Q and A. So you have questions or super chats, we'll get to those for about fifteen minutes before we wrap things up here. Um, we have a super chat from writer John Buck. Thank you so much for your super chat, your support. Um, he says, um, "Nemes, do you think that there's any issues for classical theists who are divine consilious as they have to say all God's thoughts are the same?"
1: That's a good question. What is a well? We'd have to ask the question. What is a divine? What is a divine? Thought, you know, what is the divine Mm -hmm. thought? Uh, There are two ways of thinking about this, I think. On the one hand, you can say that the divine ideas or the divine thoughts are possible beings. And when God creates something, when he makes something actual, that's like, you know, you putting your concepts together in a sentence or in a proposition in your mind and thinking it. Um, Another way to say is that there are no divine you know well another way would be to say that these possible beings are divine ideas so it depends on what analogy you want to press it depends on where you want to put the the uh, the emphasis you can put the emphasis on god as the cause of things in which case you would not talk about divine ideas you would talk about possible beings that he actualizes or you can put the emphasis on god as a mind in which case you would talk about possible beings as divine ideas um do you have to say that all the divine ideas are the same? No, uh, because not all possible beings are the same either, right? So for example, I have it in my power to do all kinds of things. I have it in the, my power to lift up a cup. I have it in my power to stand up. Those are not the same thing. Those possibilities that are within my power are not the same thing, but I am one and the same thing. That is, you know, uh, you know, I am one thing and those are possibilities for me. So you might say that similarly, all the possible beings that God can create, they are not God. They are possibilities that subsist uh, in virtue of God's power, right? They are possible because they are things that God can actualize. So you don't have to say that they're all the same, I don't think.
0: Mm, That's great, thank you. And thank you for your super chat, um, John. Another super chat from Kyle uh, Lander. Uh, Thank you so much again uh, for your super chat. He says, does God have extrinsic change on classical theism?
1: This is a good question. Ryan Mullins uh, sometimes makes the claim that on classical theism, God does not have extrinsic changes. Now, Ryan Mullins is much better read than I am, so I'm not going to contradict him if some classical theists have said this. Uh, but is it possible for God to change extrinsically on classical theism? This is how I would answer the question. Mm-hmm. Um, first of all, I would say, well, what is an extrinsic change? Um, you might think that an extrinsic change is not a real change at all. It's it's a change in something else that is somehow related, you know, to to something. So, for example, I can go about. I can go from thinking about Rachel to not thinking about Rachel. You know, that's an extrinsic change because at one moment I was thinking about Rachel and at one moment, at another moment, I wasn't. Rachel doesn't change in that scenario, right? So when we talk about her being the object of my thought and then later not being the object of my thought, that's that's sort of a loose way of speaking because strictly speaking, nothing has happened to her just because I think about her. You know, mm-hmm. like you know, I can think about all kinds of things that I want to do in life. I can think about you know, winning the lottery or... Uh, owning of, you know, the Seattle Seahawks or something, but nothing's happened. Nothing changes in the world just because I think about it. The only thing that changes is me. I go from thinking about one thing to thinking about the next. Uh, So the world changes. And, you know, perhaps a person goes from thinking about God to not thinking about God. A person goes from loving God to not loving God or vice versa. But God himself doesn't change in that way. It is true that at one point in time, you know, this person doesn't love God. And then at a later point in time, this person does love God, but God is not changed by what happens. If you want to call that an extrinsic change, sure. If you want to say that that's not an extrinsic change, you know, I I think at that point, we're just uh, fighting over words. Hmm.
0: Um, another question here, which is a really um, insightful question from Tyler, which says, um, "How essential is divine simplicity to orthodoxy? Um, do people who reject it um, believe in a false god, just as those who reject the doctrine of the Holy Trinity? This is a really good question because you know I've heard some people say that if you reject the, the divine simplicity, you're basically a polytheistic, a polytheist. So like, how? Wh- what's your view on this question?" This is a
1: very good question. Uh, mm-hmm. And here I will, you know, perhaps uh, show, show my cards a little bit. Um, this question about orthodoxy is a controversial one, because what actually is orthodoxy? Mm-hmm. You know, do I have to submit to the Nicene definition of God in order to be orthodox? Or can I simply say that it's true? But, you know, if another person doesn't believe it, they're not They may be mistaken, but, you know, apart from that, there's nothing really wrong with them per se. They're just Mm -hmm. believing in something else. It's not like they're believing in a different God. Um, You know, we can think about it in analogy, by analogy to this. Suppose, you know, I, let's say I'm a substance dualist, and my friend JT, for example, is a a hylomorphic dualist, so he's not a substance dualist. He's, you know, more in the Thomistic tradition, okay? Mm -hmm. Both JT and I worked for Oliver Crisp. OK, but we understand Oliver Crisp differently. I would say if I'm a substance dualist, I'm not necessarily a substance dualist. Let's just say for the for the sake of argument that I am. I would say that Oliver Crisp is a composite object of an immaterial soul and a material body. OK, mm-hmm. JT would say, no, Oliver is a hylomorphic composite. He's a sub, you know, he's a form matter composite um, that, uh, you know, has a, a, a substantial form and prime matter. OK, mm-hmm. so we think about Oliver differently. But we both talk to him all the time and we both see him and we both work for him. You know, so suppose one day I change my mind. Suppose I'm convinced of hylomorphic dualism or suppose I go from being a substance dualist to being an idealist or to being a reductivist materialist or whatever. Something has changed in my mind because I think about Oliver differently now. But Oliver is still the same. He's 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 been unaffected. I still have been talking to him. I still have been working with him. I've still been studying under him jt also can change his mind suppose this this is what's interesting suppose jt gives up on hylomorphic dualism but he doesn't know what to believe anymore he has this moment Mm -hmm. of you know confusion where he no longer has a theory he can still see oliver and he can still talk to him you know he can still ask oliver questions he can still work for him he can still interact with him even though he doesn't know what oliver is so i think we should distinguish between what we say about things and the contact that we have with them I can have contact with other persons, even if I don't know what a human person is. And even if I change my mind about what a human person is, you know, there's actually two layers here. There's what I experience, And then there's something on top of that, the way that I think about it. Mm -hmm. So, so also just because people reject the Holy Trinity or they reject divine simplicity, I don't think that they have a false God. And I don't think that they're like worshiping Zeus or something like that. They're Mm -hmm. worshiping God. It's just that they think about him differently. I think about him a certain way. Another person thinks about him a different way. Um, we can sort of like suspend our beliefs and not think anything. And God is still there. So I would say that it's not a matter of like believing in a false God. It's not a matter of like essential for orthodoxy. These are my opinions. I, all that doesn't matter to me, right? God is God. And we are in contact with God. Uh, although we may understand him very differently, just like all JT and I can be in contact with Oliver, our boss, and we can talk to him and we can interact with him, even if, we think about him differently, or we would say different things about him. And even if we come to suspend our beliefs and we simply don't know what Oliver is.
0: Mm-hmm. So
1: I, that, that's how I would respond to this question.
0: Yeah, that's great. Um, another question here from QRT, which says I have some difficulty making the distinction of theistic personalism and, and Scoticism um, in any case with regards to God, uh, God, to univ- univocal predication. What would be the differences?
1: I am not an expert in. John Duns Scotus, so I can't speak for that. However, I would say that to some extent, uh, the idea of univocal predication to God is essential to theistic personalism. Like I said earlier, God on theistic personalism is greater than his creatures. He's not radically different from them, like in classical theism. He's simply greater. And so to say that God is greater presupposes that's, that it's possible to make comparisons. It's possible to use one and the same term of God and creatures, even if you know God is more so than the rest of us. So I have knowledge and God has knowledge. That's univocal. It's the same thing. It's just that I have less of it and God has all of it that's possible. Um, I would also emphasize this point. I forget his name. There's There's a Scott Williams or I forget his name exactly, but he has this wonderful paper where he argues that analogy is actually a false third option between you know, uh, univ- univocal predication and analogical, uh, equivocal predication. And he argues something like this, any analogical predication that you want to make, in order to explain what you mean, you will have to identify some univocal, you know, term of comparison that you can use to describe both things. Um, so let's take this, for example, we can say that God is analogously loving. All right. I, what do you mean when you say that God is analogously loving? I know what it means to say that a human being is loving, right? He has certain feelings and he does certain things. What do you mean that God is analogously loving? Well, in order to make this predication meaningful, I have to say something that I could also say literally and univocally of a human being. Uh, and that's, mm-hmm. a, in fact, what I've done. I've said God is analogously loving in the sense that he does things that would, you know, we would call loving. Uh, he doesn't have any inner you know, feelings of love, maybe, but he does things that are expressive of what we would call love. And so in that case, you have a univocal predication. In fact, um, you have a univocal predication of love to human beings, which is a little richer. It involves an inside and an outside aspect. It involves what we feel and also what we do. Whereas when we talk about God loving, we're only concerned with what he does. We're not concerned with what he feels or what is going on on the inside because we don't have access to that. So that's a univocal predication. Um, Basically, classical theism, um, you can take sort of two ways with it. You can take the cataphatic approach and you can say God is analogously XYZ Or you can take the apophatic approach and say, God is not univocally XYZ, right? So I am an individual with properties. God is not. Uh, Mm -hmm. I am loving in the sense that I have certain feelings. God does not have those feelings. I am a free creature in the sense that I have potentialities to do X or Y. God is not a free creature in that univocal sense, in the sense that he doesn't have a potentiality to do X or Y. So you can take the apophatic approach and just make univocal denials of what God is, Or you can take the analogous approach and say, I am free, but God is also analogously free. But I think in the end, when you say that God is analogously free, if that's going to make any kind of sense, you will have to identify some univocal expression that can in fact be applied to God and to creatures.
0: Hmm. Right. Well, I think that's about all the questions we have. So I thank you so much, Stephen, on and talking and defending divine simplicity and answering a bunch of questions. So is there any kind of like last thoughts, things you want to say before we start to wrap things up here? the final thought that i would have um, is that people if they
1: want to understand divine simplicity they really have to learn how to think differently about god they have to learn how to grasp uh, the fact that god is not an individual thing with properties once you can grasp that once you can see that there's a distinction between an individual thing with properties and just pure existence then you can understand really what divine simplicity teaches and you can understand how also a proponent of divine simplicity will have to under, you know interpret all these Christian claims that are made about God. Uh, I think a lot of people object to divine simplicity and to classical theism because they don't yet understand that God is not an individual thing with properties. They they are still thinking about God as an individual thing with properties, even if they turn him into a property himself. Uh, mm-hmm. So you have to you have to get back you have to get beyond that. You have to sort of. Clarify in your mind that God is not an individual thing with properties, and then you can begin to, to talk about him. I would also like to uh, make just a brief announcement, I suppose. I'm there um, There is going to be an episode coming out of the Classical Theism podcast uh, in which I talk with John DeRosa on divine simplicity, modal collapse, uh, and these issues. So, you know, be on the lookout for that episode, too, because I address more recent formulations of the modal collapse argument. And, you know, we, we talk about all those issues there, too.
0: Right. Well, it be great. And I'm sure we're all looking forward to that. So thank you so much, Stephen, for coming on. There's a link down below so you can follow his website and his work and you can follow him on social media and all that fun stuff. Uh, so thank you so much for joining me once again, Stephen. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. It was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun. And thank you everyone for tuning in to another episode of here in Apologetics as always brought to you by you with support on Patreon.com. So if you enjoy, it, you can support us on Patreon. We're about 90% funded. So really appreciate everyone's support there. Uh, thank you to everyone who joined and everyone who super chatted gospel edge and John Muck and Kyle. Uh, so thank you so much for tuning in. And one last time, Stephen, thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate uh, you and your work and look forward to you being Dr. Nemes here um, or Nemesh in a f- in about a month.
1: The pleasure, the privilege was mine.
0: Thank you everyone for tuning in. God bless.